Welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. We're here to bring you helpful information from leading experts and give you effective tools and support. I'm Jason Grigla, a licensed counselor and founder of Techie for Life, a specialized mentoring program for neurodiverse young adults. And I'm Debbie Grigla, a certified life coach. And maybe most importantly, we're also parents to our own atypical young adults. Hello and welcome to part two of the episode that I call Having a High School Redo, where we discuss developmental differences and the issues that are caused and at what times because of neurodiversity. And we're going to discuss the solutions, interventions, and some of the ways that we have learned to mitigate the issues that our neurodiverse loved ones are being affected by and struggle with. To recap, we discussed in in part one how the developmental timeline, specifically the stages of development, um, referring specifically to Dr. Erickson's stages of development, and how our loved ones that are neurodiverse tend to fall apart right around stage three in initiative versus guilt, and all of the other stages that should follow stage three then become sidetracked and are in some ways non-starters because every stage has to build on the previous stage. And there are, there are very real issues that are disabilities with our, our neurodiverse loved ones. I think there's a big push in some of the neurodiverse um, in some of the neurodiverse cultures that um, a quirky brain or a square peg isn't necessarily broken or damaged or different in ways that are negative. And I, I think there's some truth to the fact that square pegs being pushed into round holes is very much a problem and that we can mitigate a lot, a lot of the issues with Um, square pegs being pushed into round holes by just understanding their world and finding square holes for them to be put in. At the same time, there are some very real things that neurodiverse young adults struggle with, especially, for example, with autism or nonverbal learning disorder, where they have executive functioning issues and managing and organizing things doesn't happen or the ability to learn from the past and apply life lessons to the future is is really struggling or damaged. Um, I would say those are disabilities and the the ability to become independent and self-reliant um, goes down and their potential success rate goes down. And depending on how different their brain is and Also, the secondary and tertiary issues, I learned tertiary means the third layer. So you've got secondary, which is second. We use that a lot. But tertiary um, is the third set or wave of issues that comes along. Those are very much damaging. And it's not just because the world doesn't accept or understand a neurodiverse brain. So I've always tried to be honest and not, not be offensive. Um, at the same time, honest assessment is really important. 
I think the timeline for neurodiverse young adults is very much different, and it's not just a function that a function of people treating them differently or expecting them to do it their way, um, as if as if then neurodiverse teenagers, if they could do it their own way, they would be just as functional. I don't think that's fair to say either. And the reason that's important for me to bring up is because many of us, many of us as parents felt like that if we just did everything right, if we just did it the right way, then everything would fall into place and we and our loved loved ones wouldn't struggle and they would stay on task and they would stay on um, on track for their developmental milestones to happen and that's just not fair pressure to put on any anyone who's trying to mentor and support and love and it can cause a lot of havoc and damage on marriages if they assume that if we just had the right intervention therapist medication school plan discipline um, approach or bribe, then then everything would fall into place. Um, so we we got to a point in our last episode where we discussed that the issues that these young adults start to fall really far behind around 13, 14, 15, and then by age 17, 18, it's, it's a full-fledged, full-blown crisis because they've fallen so far behind. And they, unfortunately, the neurodiverse young adults or teens are capable and smart enough and aware enough to know that they're not cutting it, but that they should be. They're smart enough to know what they should be doing, but they can't or they won't or they don't, even if they want to. Um, One of the saddest parts of I think many of these diagnoses or differences is that they can often be independent and successful for a week or a month at a time, but that the real disability is lack of consistency or the inability to continually do things that would be successful for them or or benefit to them. So they might be able to go out of their way and be social and friendly at high school or junior high and make friends. But because they're f- forcing it or putting themselves so out so far out of their comfort zone, they can't maintain it. Or they can go to work and be on time for two weeks at their job, but after that, it was just too much, and they start to they start to falter and struggle. And then, as as mentors, we're like, "Well, you could do it for that long. How come you can't keep doing it?" And that's actually a part of the disability is the lack of consistency. And I think our our neurodiverse loved ones know that they're not cutting it. They know where they're falling apart. And that's really hard because they're kind of stuck. Danged if you don't, danged if you do. doesn't matter what they do. They're kind of in no man's land where they should be able to do it. And they know it, but they just can't do it. So... There's three layers, the primary, secondary, and tertiary issues with these developmental differences that I want to talk about. And the, the primary issue is the very physiological, neurological differences, and that the brain is different. And that's why they're called neurodiverse or neuroatypical. And it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is, um, ADHD, autism, nonverbal learning disorder, um, developmental disorder, not otherwise specified, NOS. These are unhealable, unchangeable issues. Um, You can't just treat away 
diabetes or um, a broken or, or a, bar, a part of a part of our body that didn't form typically. Um, and then the the secondary issues that come are how those primary physiological neurological differences affect us in life, where they're less likely to reach as many milestones. Um, they might reach those milestones later, but not as effectively, and their attempts are less effective. And a lot of that comes down to a lot of trauma for them as they're aware of what's going on around them, but they're not able to cut it. They know their square pegs and that the world is round holes in their expectations. Um, they often have abuses from others where they get picked on because they're different and people don't understand them. And they often perceive that they're being abused because other people move ahead and leave them behind. And so they feel picked on um, or left out. And often the third thing is the deprivation that happens, meaning they don't get their basic needs met and they're not capable of meeting their own needs. And their family just isn't able to cut it anymore. Mom and dad aren't enough. They they love me, yeah, but that's not what I need. I need my peers to think I'm enough. So when we have traumas, abuses, and deprivations happen, that's a really painful, scary place. And it, it would send anybody into fight or flight mode. And then comes the third layer or tertiary layer of problems. And that is the internal learned beliefs that that we all get to some extent. Um, we're, we're not exempt from life and neurodiverse people aren't exempt from life. And how we respond to traumas, abuses, and deprivations and the things that we learn about ourselves with self-talk and beliefs and our identity is very much damaged. And that's when depression and anxiety come in as a as a third wave of problems. And then the coping mechanisms to deal with those crises comes in with poor coping skills and behaviors. And we are much more similar to neurodiverse brains than we are dissimilar. And so they have the same needs that we have to be long and to be included, to be enough, and to want to fight to develop through those stages of development. Now, the more the more disabled or severely um, diverse our brains are, the I think the less pressure and awareness that they put on themselves. For example, someone who would be a level two autist, um, which is kind of the medium where they will always need some support, their awareness is lacking enough that maybe they are clueless to the fact that they're not being included and they don't necessarily mind because it doesn't hurt because they really are okay with not having relationships and their cognitive awareness isn't there enough to say, I really want to accomplish great things for me or for the world, or I'm bored with the same video game. And so I'm going to put it behind me like a child does or a teenager that gets bored with their video game and they can end up playing the same video game the rest of their life. 
that's a sign of severe disability that that they don't get bored with the same um, passions and interests and special hobbies that they have. Eventually, most people get tired and bored of the way that they cope with life and they have to do something more. And I just can't sit and play video games anymore. I, I don't mind connecting with my kids playing video games, but it doesn't do anything for me. Um, I wish it did. It might be nice to have such a, a great escape. And video games have come a long ways since Space Invaders in the 80s. Um, and so they're much more engrossing and and they envelop a whole life. And so it's much easier to escape into those video games. So the third layer of beliefs and and low self-esteem and negative coping skills becomes what most of us start to fight. And we try to focus our time and energy onto addressing those behaviors. And the behaviors are sleeping in, overeating, um, video games, screen time, maybe, maybe more severe things like cutting, um, some of the negative self-destructive tics like trichotillomania where you pull your hair out because of anxiety or your eyebrows. Um, we tend to focus on performative issues as parents because we want them to do well. And I think that's a big mistake. When we want them to do well, we're not actually hitting the right issue. Um, we want them to actually be well. And to be well takes a lot more insight and work and effort. Um, but it's also way more effective if we focus on how they are, not what they do. And I think a, a big mistake that we that we have is focusing on performance versus well-being, especially socially and emotionally. And that that very much includes our relationship with ourself and our relationship with others. Um, there's a great quote that says, Every acting out or acting in behavior, every expression of anger or destructive self-sabotage is the tragic expression of an unmet need. And so when we have a needs-based approach, then we have a relational-based approach. And when we are okay with ourselves, then what we do becomes naturally more effective and progressive. And then relationships and attachments start to happen. And then when our basic foundational needs are met with those relationships, then all the things that we do start to take care of themselves. And oftentimes it takes parents and mentors a lot of experience in this field before they learn on their own that focusing on what can I get them to do is secondary and should be secondary to learning, helping them learn to be okay. So one of the ways um, that we discuss needs for children is that they need safety, security, and a sense of control and consistency. And then teens, they need evidence of worth. They need peer acceptance, relationships of, with their self and with others, and they need development and practice where they can be safe to make mistakes 
and learn before they have to go off and actually succeed on their own. And as adults, they very much need intimacy, attachment, and self-actualization. Most high-functioning neurodiverse teens and young adults get stuck um, with the evidence of self-worth, which is one of the reasons that they, in their later teens and early 20s, and maybe even later 20s, if they're if they are more severely um, neurodiverse, they have a requirement to go back and actually experience the things that they didn't experience. To have evidence of self-worth, there must be proof that they're enough. And that does, that does mean performative things, like what are they doing and what are they accomplishing? The problem is before they're willing to let themselves feel good about getting a scholarship for science or winning an award for some computer program or AI model that they produced until they learn they're worthy of feeling happy, that they're worthy of self-love and worthy of others, uh, where they have enough self-esteem to be able to allow others to compliment them and they actually take it in. Um, there's there's often um, a fight or flight situation, a crises mode where they've been knocked down so much that if they let themselves get up and let themselves feel good when someone says, great job, or you are amazing at these things, or you have these wonderful attributes, if they allow themselves to feel good about those things, they've learned that they're going to get disappointed and fail very, fairly quickly, or again, um, even if it's weeks or months away, and many of them in their late teens and young adult years have learned not to get up, not to try, not to care, and they've convinced themselves that it doesn't matter and it won't matter. And so they stay down on the mat. And so when I say to a young adult, that was really awesome. You have a really good knack for that. And what I really loved most was that you didn't quit until it was done. And you just kept going. And at that point, they either like themselves enough to say, thank you. That feels really good. Or they completely deflect it and blow it off and throw it out. Um because they don't let anything get into them emotionally. And so if they are, if they're highly disabled, then they can take the compliment and think that they're the greatest person in the world and not even blink because of course they're that cool. The, the population that I think needs and requires the most help are those who are functional enough to understand that they aren't the same but that they should be. And those who have enough understanding and insight to take the secondary issues of the traumas, abuses, neglects, and isolation, and they're smart enough to move that into really what's a, it's a sophisticated reaction, which is, I suck. I'm not enough. I'm the problem. Someone who's really autistic, level, level three or level two, they don't think that way. But someone who's level one, traditionally an Asperger's type brain is aware that they, that they aren't the same. And then they have the self-loathing that, that is attached with it. Those who are capable enough to get to that third wave of issues, the self-loathing, the negative self-talk, the negative self-beliefs, 
they have more layers of damage and armor and defense mechanisms and negative coping skills to deal with. And that's a really hard situation for parents and mentors and therapists, teachers, anyone who loves someone who is not only autistic, but then they're alone and lonely. And on top of that, they hate themselves because they're lonely. You're juggling a lot of balls and you're trying to figure out how to get through that armor and convince them that they're enough. So at the very end of the day, if all you focus on is performance, um, you're going to fail. They might actually get their driver's license, but then never feel good about it because they can say, well, that doesn't mean I'm ever going to have friends or get a date. You can give them a car and have them drive safely for the first time at age 22. And that doesn't mean they'll have the self-esteem to ask a girl out or to make something happen or the ability to call a group of friends and say, hey, let's go get dinner. One of the one of the quotes that I really like about parenting, it goes something like this. It says, a parent's job is to give their children roots and wings. And the foundational roots that we give them as parents or mentors of any kind is that they are enough. But the world is teaching them very clearly that they are not enough and they don't measure up because of their developmental delayed timeline. The wings then never grow. They never mature or they're never used. And to use their wings requires risk and confidence. It requires moving into stage four developmentally um, where it's industry versus inferiority and then into identity versus role confusion and then intimacy versus isolation and then where they generate or they stagnate in the last developmental stages. So when we had our first love, our first crush, you know, for me, it was, I had crushes all growing up. Um, Mrs. Raznick in fifth grade. I don't know. I was just in love with her. She was so great. And it wasn't romantic in the sense that we would think, wow, I want to kiss her. But it was more like an infatuation um, of wanting to have her attention. And then in seventh grade, um, having having Jenny or Kira just be smiling and laughing at my jokes was the most amazing feeling in the world. And then in eighth grade, when I got my first kiss, oh my gosh, I walked on air for at least a week after my first kiss. And to be honest, I don't even know if I got her on the lips. I was so nervous. My eyes were closed. Those were magical moments, but they were critical to giving me the confidence that I needed to go to the next stage. And the students that we work with that are neurodiverse have not had those experiences. So whatever is in the way, wherever they are at, we start where they're at and we go from there. And if they have a strong desire to meet their needs, then with a lot more work and effort than a neurotypical brain, we can help them get there. But it usually takes four to five times more energy and effort to help them because there are so many things standing in their way and our way to help them get their first date or to help them get their first kiss. So the danger um, is we look at their age and we think, well, they're 16, they should want to drive. Or, you know, they're, they're 14, they should want to go to the movies instead of stay on their, on their screen. Um, and I don't understand it because... 
another parent said, I, I was so excited when he got a perfect ACT score on his math section. And then his others weren't far behind, but they weren't perfect. And he has a full-ride scholarship to almost any university he wants to attend. But we can't get him to come down from his room or out of the basement. And he has no friends, and he's all alone. And so our job is to create an environment where it's not only acceptable, but exciting to go back and redo missed opportunities. If they're smart enough to know that at 22 or 23, they should have a group of friends. So they're embarrassed about going back and relearning how to be a friend. Um, that, then we have to overcome that. We have to create an environment and a safe space where they can say, look, I just want to learn how to talk to girls. And I guess I'm mature enough and responsible enough and safe enough and confident enough to accept your mentoring and help to do it because clearly I haven't been able to do it on my own. That takes a lot of insight and a lot of relational influence. Um, one example that we use at our school is the mentors are assigned a specific student to have a special relationship with. And we have our mentors literally sit with students and do what they like and what they're interested in, the students, for hours when they first come, they'll sit and watch them play their, their favorite video game and just talk with them and connect. And wow, that is an amazing choice that we have utilized and is so effective. Think about when you have a coping mechanism that you really rely on. Um, maybe for me, it's overeating food. And I have someone come in and want to go eat with me and talk about my interests. And they're there with me trying to attach with me, which is scary, while I have my comfort food in front of me to make it so that my anxiety doesn't go over the top, to make me feel familiar and comfortable enough to attach while I'm actually doing something that's fairly unproductive and destructive. But what happens is after hours and hours of watching them play video games, for example, the next time that student is struggling, the student's more likely by far to come and say, I'm struggling to that mentor or to that relational, um, that relational person in their life. And because we met them where they were at, instead of lectured them for being on their screen so much or telling them that's, that screen is wasting your life or video games are bad, you need to stop. When we meet them where they're at, and we're able to build that relationship of influence and accept them for their interests, even if they are offensive or annoying. Um, I can't tell you how many times I wanted to go down with a hammer and break a video game console to just away the thing that, that was their security blanket because I, I saw the video games as the problem. Technology is not the problem. Technology is actually a part of the solution. Um, our approach is to meet them where they're at and not worry about what they're doing as much as are we connecting and attaching. And if we think of them as enough and we provide an environment where they have peers that they can 
be around without having a lot of anxiety that they're not measuring up. And this is a hard thing to do. One of the things that is so successful about a school like Techie for Life, for example, is that we created an environment where they are surrounded by neurodiverse, quirky kids. And by kids, I mean up to age 30, but they belong and they don't have to spend an inordinate amount of energy and time comparing themselves to the people around them and knowing they're not cutting it. And we call that comparison fatigue, where they already are behind in how much energy units or emotional units they have to spend every day. And when they spend a lot of that comparing themselves to others, it's exhausting. So we created a, a social, emotional, belonging environment where attachment is king and where belonging is the key to being okay so that then they can do things that are performative. And that is hard to do at home. As a matter of fact, I don't know how you can do it at home unless you happen to find uh, a church group outside of the home or a, uh, I don't know, a club, somewhere where they can go and know they're enough. And that can't happen at home because parents don't count anymore. I need my peers to tell me that I'm enough and I need it to be in a safe enough place where I can relax and let myself be myself because it's exhausting to try to act like and mask everyone like everyone else, put a mask on like everyone else. That's typical. And so creating an environment where it's okay to go back and have your first date at age 22 or get your driver's license at, you know, age 19 or 30, whatever it is, we have to throw the timeline out. One of the things that a parent can do or anyone that's trying to mentor someone is sit down with them and have an honest discussion that their brain is different and that's not a problem. It's hard and it has been hard and it's not something that anyone can change. So it is what it is. Just like some people might be too tall or too short or too fat or too skinny or Someone was born rich and someone was born poor. It is just what it is. And explain that their timeline for developmental stages is different. And it would be awesome if it were different in the sense that they could grow up faster and be smarter quicker. And the, the reality is it's just not. The timelines are are slower and behind for social um, awareness and meeting these milestones. Um, ironically, you could probably point out that there are some areas where their neurodiverse brains are better than others. And, and, and for some people, they're just not. They're just normal and typical. Um, but it's good to point out if they do have something that is off in what we might consider the positive direction, so they, they can understand math easily. Um, or memorize things like nobody's business and point out that different isn't bad. And then explain that because it's different, they're going to need some extra help and mentoring and give themselves some forgiveness and permission to be different. And they're going to have to be brave and suck it up because they are different. And just know that, hey, if people treat you differently, um, that's their problem. And we are a team and you're going to be fine. 
but you're going to have to accept that your timeline is different and it's going to take longer um, to do the same things that they're doing, especially with social emotional type stuff. And remind them that you have the same needs as everyone else and it's going to be um, a different time frame and you're going to have to work harder to get some of those needs met. And don't be fooled by sometimes when they say, look, I don't care about any of those things. The reality is they do care. Um, they just have been hurt and feel so guilty about them that they decided not to care. And they try not to care, but that's not accurate either. And it's kind of dishonest. Um, and then be forgiving of them when they have escapist behaviors. One, one meme that I really love is when someone sits down and says, I'll just play a video game for an hour or so. Or I'll just sit down and watch one or two episodes of Netflix. And it's done. Dang it. And that, that is so... It's, that is so typical of someone who's trying to survive a crisis time in their life. And you can be mad at them at the behavior, but that's performative and based on what they're doing and not where they're at and how they are. So parents, mentors, therapists, counselors, if you can help them find evidence, tangible evidences of their worth and quit telling them that they're good enough, but tell them that it's going to be important for them to actually accomplish a few things so that they have something to actually point to. And there's a short list that, that we use kind of as a barometer for where students are at. And it's helpful and important to have them, if possible, get, you know, half of these would be great. Leadership experience, peer acceptance, some romance, driver's license, checking accounts, disposable income that they don't have to save and that mom and dad don't control, freedom to manage their own time, trial and error without permanent costs, meaning they have a place where they can practice doing things like riding a bike, even though they're going to fall a few times. It's, it's pretty embarrassing at 20 or 21 to think I'm still learning how to turn in my, my assignments or manage my money. But that's something that they need to understand is going to happen. They're going to have to practice it. Sometimes they're so rigid in their black and white thinking that they can't accept that there's going to be a learning curve. They they think they're supposed to be able to do it just like everyone else is now, even though everyone else started dating or flirting or thinking about the opposite sex at age 13, 14, or earlier. And they've been practicing it for six years. And <laughs> that neurodiverse young adult they didn't even start thinking about the opposite sex maybe until they were 18. So they weren't aware necessarily of all the learning curve that did go on for typicals. Um, moving on, personal successes in any area that they find important and interesting. Individuations is a term. Individuation is a term about becoming who you are and being good with your own strengths and weaknesses. And it leads into self-actualization as adults where we become the best the best person that we can be for ourselves. Um, personal image, appearance, choice. It's hard if they don't value their hygiene unless they actually have a reason to value it. And it won't matter how many times you try to teach them to value brushing their teeth, using soap, using deodorant, changing your clothes. They don't care unless there's a reason to care. Even if they need it. 
from your perspective. Unless they see that there's a need, there's no point in pushing it. So before you worry about hygiene, you're going to have to create opportunities where they they care about their hygiene. They want to impress people. Um, helping them to be the cool kid, the funny kid, the one that shines, and that takes a lot of confidence. Um, having a place where they belong and that they feel like they're a part of a tribe. That's a short review of the needs that they have that are typically unmet and underdeveloped. And to do those things, there's three motivators that we use that can be helpful. Um, maybe four, if you count punishment, and we'll talk about that one in a second. But the three motivators we use most that are effective are one, a relationship of influence, which means we're equals, we're partners. We might have different responsibilities, but we're still the same. Um, I'm not above you. And that's so much different than an, an influence of power where you do what I say because I'm the boss. The second would be bribes, rewards. Hey, you may not be interested in that, but I'm interested in you practicing that. And I think it'll feel good when you try it. So I'm willing to buy you a new game or take you for an extra special weekend. Uh, we offered one student almost $200 to take a class in social dance at the university because he didn't see the value in it. And we did, but he did really value video games at the time. And so he said, no, 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 I won't take it because it was scary. He pretended he didn't care, but deep down he was scared as, as could be about dancing and touching physically girls and messing up and being quirky and awkward. And we knew that he would be okay and it wouldn't be a disaster. So I said, look, I'm willing to buy you a video game if you will take this class. I know you've been wanting this other video game. And he's like, really? I, ooh, that, that's worth it to me. And so he signed up. And after a month in the class, he had overcome his fear and monster in the closet feeling about girls being untouchable and so far away and mysterious that he could never approach them. And that was a huge changer for him. He was still quirky. He still has a hard time finding girls to date that fit him. But at least he's in the he's in the room with them. And metaphorically and physically, he's there. Uh, the next one would be systematic annoyance. We've trademarked that as a name because it's funny. Systematic annoyance is when we say, hey, have you talked to that girl yet? Hey, have you texted that girl yet? Or hey, have you gotten your driver's license yet? Hey, how's that driver's license coming? And it's sarcastic and funny, and it has to be done without it feeling critical or negative. And it can only be done when they're close enough to accomplishing the task that it's not a negative where we push them away or they push us away because we keep bringing it up. So there's an art there. Um, but when we annoy them systematically, I'm surprised how many times they just cave to get us off their back because it's so annoying. They're like, fine, I'll do it. Just leave me alone. And that actually works um, more often than you would think. And the last one is punishment. And by punishment, I don't mean consequences where I'm going to hurt you if you don't do what I want, but that's how they see it. So it's really important to approach punishment in terms of I'm going to remove things that get in your way. I love your video game. I bought your video game for you. You got it for Christmas or I helped you play it. You know I love how much you love your video games. And that is not the problem. And right now, it is in the way. So I'm going to take it and put it on pause or I'm going to turn off your Wi-Fi for a while because you 
you are allowing the Wi-Fi or the, or the technology or reading on Reddit to get in the way of what you know would be good for you. And I love you too much to let you stay stagnant. Now, that approach is what a partner would do. Um, but a parent would sound like if you don't do what you're supposed to do, you're grounded for video games. That's it. I'm, I'm so mad at the video games and you're out of control and there's contention and then the relationship gets hurt. So how you do it and how you are when you do it is way more important um, than the words that you use. So teaching developmental timeline delays is critical. Give them the information and front load that through your teen years, your timeline is going to be different. Help them grieve the losses that they are going to have a different timeline, that their square pegs, that their brain is different. Square isn't bad, just different. Pushing them to adult or have performance is actually going to cause harm and damage. Creating an environment where you walk with them through the learning to adult is what is the most effective. Be with them, not behind them, with a whip or ahead of them yelling, hurry up, you're, you're falling behind. That just makes them move slower and get tripped up and hurt themselves. And even if you do it perfectly, they will still see you as a parent if you're the parent and not be able to respond very well. So it's really important if you can to find a mentor, an uncle, a grandpa, a neighbor, a teacher, a professor, a scout leader, a church leader a therapist, um, a mentor, anyone that you can find because they can say things that parents could never say and get away with it and they would accept it and believe it. So lastly, would be focus on avocations as much as or more than vocations. Avocations are the things they do when they want to build character, talent, and they want to find their own individual personality and path. It's hard when they mix those with their escape tools and their obsessive, compulsive, negative behaviors that we would tend to make them black and white and put them in a box and say, yeah, those are bad. Instead of, well, they're not all bad. Um, they really are things that my, um, my neurodiverse mentee values and cares about. So I've reviewed everything that I think we want to hear about today. And I, I know it's hard sophisticated, in-depth, lots of details. It's muddy, it's mucky, and there is a light at the end of the tunnel. How well you approach mentoring and influencing the ones that you love, how long it takes is very much um, adjustable and changeable. And you can either make it really hard and be miserable throughout the whole process, or you can just accept it for what it is and enjoy the journey. And if you do that, their journey through the, the swamps and the crap will be so much faster and more enjoyable because you were together. It's like doing the dishes, having a ball because you're having fun with the people or doing the dishes with, with people and everyone's mad and angry that they have to do the dishes and they're fighting. Uh, you still get through the task eventually, but you were happy with one and miserable with the other. I'm going to end there. It's been a good couple of sessions and I wish you the best of luck and we will keep talking about these subjects in depth and in detail. So thanks for listening and I'm excited to keep working with you and getting to know you if possible and having on interviews that will help you with your mentees and the, the neurodiverse people in your lives that you love. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Autism and Neurodiversity with Jason and Debbie. 
If you want to learn more about our work, come visit us at jasondebbie.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-D-E-B-B-I-E.com. 